Welcome to the Equestrian Connection podcast from WeHorse, the online riding academy. My name is Danielle Kroll, and I'm your host. On this week's episode, we're talking with Scott Siesler, the founder of Mad Barn. Scott has 20 plus years experience as a professional nutritionist, receiving a master's in science in physiology and nutrition from the University of Guelph. He started working on a PhD, but he actually put his degree on hold to run Mad Barn. Now, Scott has nutrition down to a science, but he's not just book smart, he's got horse sense too. Growing up surrounded by horses at the B tracks of Ontario, Scott has dedicated his life to better understanding the nutritional requirements of horses and helping horse owners put the latest research into practice. So before we begin, I just want to say that this podcast is in no way sponsored by Mad Barn. However, you will hear my excitement for the company and their products. While I personally am a paying customer and use their products for my horses, the reason that I'm such an advocate for Mad Barn is because of the support and guidance that they give to horse owners for free. Mad Barn is more than a supplement company. They are a knowledge resource for equine nutrition and help give horse owners a sense of independence and self-sufficiency that many of us lack, myself included, when it comes to what to feed our horses for optimal health, what their diets may be lacking, etc. I'm super excited to share this podcast with you all so together we can learn all about equine nutrition and ensure our horses feel, look, and can perform their best. So let's dive in. Scott, welcome to the We Horse podcast. Um, as I was saying earlier, thank you so much for being here and thank you for the education that you provide um, to all the horse owners. Um, and we're going to be talking about that a little bit tonight is the the education that is missing from a lot of the horse ownership, the equine nutrition and all the things related to to feed. So let's uh, let's dive in. And I want to start at the beginning. How did you get into horses and what made you decide to pursue a career in horses? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Danielle. I really appreciate it. And uh, what got me into horses, I guess, uh, must be cliche, cliche, but I think it's uh, a lot of people have the same you know story where the first time you're introduced to a horse, you like you just instantly fall in love with them. I don't know what it is about horses. I think dogs come a close second to having that ability to just like capture you. I guess I don't know for lack of a better word. And uh, mine was maybe a little less uh, glamorous than some. It was my father taking me to the racetrack when I was really young. Uh, it was really my first introduction to it, and then um, he ended up buying a broodmare, breeding our own racehorses, and that was uh, how I got into it. Really through the standard bred industry and the B tracks, but uh, fortunately, I had the privilege to work with some really great trainers, uh, even though they're on the smaller tracks. Uh, that introduced me to you know just uh, horsemanship in general and uh, how to really care for a horse well and the importance of taking such good care of these animals. Um, well, in terms of pursuing a career in horses, this it was a bit of a long winding road. I mean, I went to university and kind of like I always knew I wanted to be involved with horses. I just didn't know how to make a career out of it. Like I didn't want to be a trainer, like with racehorses as a career. It interested me, but I was like, ah, you know, it's, it's a hard life, um, and with and a little bit insecure as well. And so I, and then I also got into research in university, which I really loved. And I was like, okay, how do I integrate these two things? And it, and it took a while for me, I guess, to kind of figure out and put it all together. And it ultimately culminated here in, uh, I guess, starting Mad Barn 
is how I landed on it because for I was away from it for quite a while. Never out of it completely, but not really. It was always just kind of on the side. So I wasn't fully immersed like I, like I certainly am now in the horse industry. Now, what's the story behind the evolution of Mad Barn? How did, how did that all come about? Because it's one thing to get into research and it's another thing to decide to start a large company. It certainly didn't start as a large company. It's certainly, <laughs> I have a few people I'm sure they would like love to sit around with a glass of wine and tell stories about me back in the day. I like I legitimately was a side hustle even before I think the term side hustle existed. I would uh, you know I had mineral and electrolytes in the trunk of my car, and I was, I was doing other things uh, because I was always in the feed business or the ingredient business and the animal agriculture side. I would have the, the horse stuff and I'd make a stop, you know, and drop off some minerals for somebody or some electrolytes uh, for people. And, uh, and then that's all it really was at the time. And again, it was kind of, as I guess I was learning, progressing and growing, you know, learning more and more about uh, business. I had a great opportunity to work for a company that gave me just tremendous business training, like an MBA level, not that I actually got an MBA, but uh, that level of business training, that's really really helped in terms of putting the whole idea together and this idea of how can you bring all your passion together into a career of, you know, I want to do this research. I want it to be in the equine industry and the nutrition business. And how can I make this all work together? Mm-hmm. And that's basically how it evolves. You have this side hustle going on because you know, you want to do it and you just, you need to kind of over time, you may figure out a way to make it happen. And then it just kind of kept growing and growing. So you get this sense that, Okay, I'm on the right path. I'm doing the right things. People are gravitating towards it. Uh, and so now we just need to make it bigger. And, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of mistakes along the way. Fortunately, when they're really small, they don't really get noticed as much. Uh, but you learn so much from those mistakes. And uh, like I, it's, it's on a blog post somewhere. But the original formula, I call the fat man performance formula, which everybody thought was just ridiculous. So somewhere along the way, I learned, I was like, I should probably enlist somebody in marketing that knows a lot more about marketing. Than <laughs> right, yeah. Maybe we should change the name. So we could, you know, that's where the kind of mad burn came from to keep the kind of quirkiness of the original, um, I guess, iteration of it. <clears throat> and then and just, you know, honestly, I think you do have to be a little bit crazy to do what we've done and how we've done it and what we continue to do in terms of what we offer, what we fund, um, in terms of primary research and whatnot. And so that side hustle now yeah, has turned into what you see today as Mad Barn, which really came into existence about seven years ago, I guess, when we really when I was right in the middle of my PhD. And so anybody listening that's, you know, maybe in grad school right now, a strong recommendation to finish grad school before you start the <laughs> start the business up. But otherwise it gets in the way uh, and maybe causes you not to get it finished. Um yeah. And then from there, it was really just those two products, you know, mineral, you know, and we'll kind of get into this as we go through the podcast a little bit, you know, very fundamental, just nutrition. You see things that, you know, basically the market needs, the horses need it, the market needs it. And I was like, we can supply this. I have the expertise, the supply channels to supply this uh, effectively. And uh, I, I want to call it low cost, but, it, you know, for the lowest cost we can. Uh, to consumers and then basically you know that's the mm-hmm. where we got going and how we kind of keep going um and then the you know from there just those that simple beginning we expanded the product line seeing you know gut health was such a big issue mm-hmm. like you can have this really great nutrition program uh, but it's, 
the horse's gut health is compromised, it may not work. They may not get the results that you're hoping for. And so, and again, I had some, I had some expertise in that area as well from multiple species. Uh, so we expanded the gut health line. And then um, I guess the last step in the last couple of years, the most significant change in the evolution of Mad Barn was bringing on a, a business partner that knows a lot more than I do about uh, web development, marketing, and she's just been a tremendous asset to the company in terms of really helping us get exposure and making sure people, you know, our message and what we're doing is getting out there. And because before, I think, you know, if you just looked at us from afar, you'd say, well, it's just another supplement company in the horse industry. And that's probably the last thing the horse industry needs is another supplement company uh, because there's so much out there. And she's really helped drive the message that we're, we're here to fund the research. Mm-hmm. This primary research is, need, is so desperately needed uh, to get funded from the nutrition standpoint. And that's basically when you purchase our products, that's what we're, we're driving on the back end. And we provide an entire staff and again, back to the evolution, this entire staff to provide this information to horse owners to help them with diet formulation. You know, we built a nutrition model already online that owners can access for free uh, so they can see the information firsthand. They don't just like, it's not just us telling them, feed this, feed that. Here, look at the numbers. And what does it mean when you put these diets together? And is it balanced or is it not? And then we provide the expertise to help owners because we don't expect everybody to be nutritionists. Mm-hmm. That's a really long evolution of Mad Burn, but <laughs> no. And as we were, I mentioned to you before we had started recording, um, I have found that the assistance that I've received from Mad Barn has been foundational in getting me started with proper nutrition for my horses. Um, you know, I, I always just kind of gave them what other people were giving them and what the barn was feeding that I was at and, you know, just jumping on, okay, well, you're providing this sure, you know, based on my horse's weight, give them two cups, AM and PM. Um, and I, you know, you didn't, you don't know. Um, and you don't know what you don't know. Um, and so listening to, first of all, you on other podcasts was a big breakthrough for me because I realize that you weren't just pushing products you were truly educating horse owners and that made me start to investigate okay well what's this mad barn all about and the support that I've received from the nutritional consultations on mad barn and like you had mentioned they're absolutely free you just go on you put in your horse's information what you are looking for so for example whether it's like um, building top line adding weight whatever it may be. Um, and then you get results based on that, based on your specific horses and my horses look better than they've ever looked. Um, they seem happier and, you know, less behavioral, um, all of the things that you want to see as an owner, my horses have. Um, and I, I just, it has been so wonderful seeing a company that's not just pushing, products randomly at any horses you're truly educating the owner owners and finding a feed plan that works for each specific horse so i think it's wonderful i'm so on board with what you're doing with mad barn and if you can't tell i'm a big fan <laughs> <laughs> thank you and like we do appreciate it uh, i mean it's a lot of work and but i mean that's this is really what it's about it's about improving the welfare of horses and ultimately Improves the welfare and well-being of their owners, right? Like, 
nobody's happy when their horse is not doing well. Oh, it has saved me so much mental energy. The like, I I, I now sleep at night. I, like <laughs> <laughs> all of the things that you were losing so much precious brain power over, wondering why is am I feeding my horse X, Y, and Z, and they're just still not gaining, um, you know, or why are are they are their feet still cracking? Why are there coat not shiny all of those things that you you really have to look at in terms of a nutritional standpoint so speaking of which what have you found that most horses are actually missing in their diets so shameless plug here like if you're really interested uh, to get the in-depth stuff i'll give you the coles notes version here there is a blog post about 6500 some just under 7,000 diets we evaluated last year that would nicely outlines this exact question um I'll link that in the show notes um, if I can find uh, that. Uh, I'll get that link from you and I'll link it in the show notes. Do you wish you could have a better partnership with your horse but aren't sure where to start? Do you want to advance your riding or horsemanship but don't have access to the ideal resources in your area? Does the idea of learning about horse training whenever and wherever and at a price that won't break your horse bank sound appealing to you? Check out WeHorse.com to access over 175 online courses with top trainers from around the world. We have courses on everything from dressage to groundwork to show jumping to bodywork. And as a member, you get access to everything in our WeHorse library to watch whenever you want. Oh, and we also have an app, which means you can download a course or video to watch without Wi-Fi, which is perfect for those days at the barn when you want a quick dose of training inspiration before your ride. So what are you waiting for? Go to wehorse.com and check out our free seven-day trial to access our WeHorse library and see if it's a good fit for you. We can't wait to see you in there. And now, back to the episode. Yeah, you bet. And so what is mostly missing salt, and I know this will come up again. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's not even something we sell, nor, and it doesn't have to be special, like Himalayan salt or uh, from salt flats of Utah or anything crazy like that. Just good old salt is like the number one thing we're not feeding enough of to our horses. Um, and I think you're going to ask a question about it later, so I'll leave the details of the salt. But if you do nothing else and take nothing else away from this, like any podcast I ever give, Forage selection and salt are the two biggest things you can do for your horse that can improve the well-being and welfare. Uh, and you don't have to go to a supplement company or a tax store to buy either one of those things. Um, the second one would be minerals and vitamins. Honestly, the vast majority of diets we see that come across, like we're well past 7,000 for this year. I mean, it's, uh, I was actually just talking to a nutritionist this morning and I said, you know, at no other company could you get to see this many equine diets in this short period of time and get this much experience, like just to see exactly what everybody's feeding and how we're doing it or how the, I guess the industry is doing it. And it honestly, it mimics a bit of the North American diet in humans. There's too much protein. There's too much energy. There's not enough nutrient density when it comes to minerals and vitamins. So, mm. uh, and this is why we have basically 30% of the equine population being succumbing to metabolic syndrome, or at least being some, like heading in that direction where they're, overweight insulin resistance can be an issue and you know the ultimately that uh, culminates in laminitis and like uh, a lot of other poor outcomes and again it's it's just it's the way we've been feeding them 
and it has a little bit actually to do with our pastures and our forages too. And just like lifestyle too, like probably lack of exercise. Again, a lot of <laughs> things very common in the North American population, human population as well. Are, we're seeing in the horses. Um, but the two biggest things I could drive home to anybody is get the salt and get the minerals and vitamins balanced. It'll make such a world of difference. The big thing with it is you don't see an immediate impact when you get the minerals and vitamins. It's not like, um, like sometimes a horse that's on, say, really poor quality forage, if you add oil to the diet, they get a really get a bloom to them very quickly. They like really get a shine to them because they've been really low fat intake and just low caloric intake. Uh, whereas the minerals and vitamins, like if your horse is just a little bit deficient in zinc and selenium, it doesn't really show up uh, like in an overt or macro sense. And, and so when you start doing it correctly, you don't see this dramatic change. You don't always associate this thing. But over time, what you will see is just much improved health. Hoof quality will be greatly, greatly improved. And you'll just have less issues with the horse, whether it be digestive issues, uh, behavior issues, even just having a balanced mineral environment program will go a long way. So the, the, those are the two biggest things we need to, for most horses, cut back on the amount of energy we're giving them, which would be, I would say, mostly in the form of grain needs to be reduced uh, and increase the nutrient density by increasing the minerals and vitamins. And it would be easy to say, hey, Scott, you say that because you sell minerals and vitamins and you don't sell feed. But I would throw that in the reverse. We sell mineral vitamins for that exact reason. And we don't sell feed for this exact reason mm. because this is the major issue that needs to be rectified. Uh, in the horse, in most horse nutrition or horse feeding situations we see. That's a good point. I remember um, hearing you say that and immediately feeling like, but my horses have to have grain. Like it's just that it's, it's almost in our culture of needing to feed them grain. And um, my mare specifically taking her off grain has been absolutely wonderful for her. And she still, of course, gets her vitamins and minerals. And um, I choose the pelleted form um, because that way she feels like she's getting something. <laughs> um, but uh, it has been wonderful for her. She is like she looks amazing, but she also she seems happier. She's less moody. Um, she's scratching less. All of those different things that you kind of just start to assume. Oh, this is just her. This is just her personality. Whatever it may be, and and making that change in the feeding. Um, again, doing it based on the nutritional consultation. This wasn't just me thinking. Okay, I'm just going to willy nilly change everything on my own. Um, this was doing the nutritional consultation. Um, but it has been huge. Um, so that's been a, a, a large shift in terms of a mindset, um, you know, thinking, okay, well, they have to have grain morning and night um, along with everything else. Yeah. And I don't, I don't even know where it came from, honestly, this idea that we have to feed grain or processed feeds to the, to them in, in the you say morning and night, the same thing, like a horse really, um, their feeding schedule is not morning and night. It's all the time, essentially. And the more we can do that kind of fit a feeding program to them of feeding all the time. And it really comes down to a forage based feeding program, then the healthier and happier they're going to be ultimately. Mm -hmm. And Absolutely. I know there, 
Like, and I, I can imagine like there's some people with, like high like high performance horses. And I think this is coming up later as well. But like, well, you have to feed some grain to a you know these really hard working horses. They'll never maintain their weight. And there's been numerous studies where they've done all forage diets. Um, you know, even with race horses, and we're easily be able to maintain their weight. It's just a matter of forage selection at that point and refining the feeding program to suit the needs of what the horse is actually doing. Mm-hmm. Let's go to, before we get to the sport horse, um, let's <laughs> go to easy keepers. So the horses, as you had mentioned earlier, um, the ones that have potential metabolic syndrome, laminitis, all of those things, they, they are on the cusp of um, the easy keepers that you look at and think, they are not hungry. Um, <laughs> what are your nutritional recommendations for them? So <laughs> I'm going to sound like a broken record. I'm, I'm sure people must get tired of listening to me. But uh, the two things for easy keepers, most importantly, exercise. Like just exercise the horse more. Um, you know, particularly ponies, which tend to seem to live on air. Uh, mm-hmm. You just need to increase the, the amount of exercise they get. People are doing wonderful things with things like they call these paddock paradises or these trails track systems they're putting in paddocks versus just you know shoving them in a big rectangular field somewhere uh, to help encourage more movement and train like just uh, stuff. But at the same time, it's you know it's great for the person too to get out and do some activity with their horse. So exercise number one, and then select the appropriate forage. Right, if you have an easy keeper, have an easy keeper that's not working that hard, uh, you want the lower quality forages possibly even feeding straw um, to maintain an appropriate weight for that horse. Because what, once, it, once you start heading down the road of metabolic syndrome, it, it gets harder and harder to correct it. It's easier to not get there in the first place and just avoid it altogether. And so it really becomes about just selecting a low quality forage for that horse. And again, back to a good balanced mineral and vitamin, loose free choice salt, and you're done. Like that's the horse's diet. Keep them eating all day keep them moving, get them as much exercise as possible. And it doesn't need to be any more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. And now what about hard keepers? Well, hard keepers is, uh, yeah, it's, it's no different. You're, again, you want to select the appropriate for it. So whether it's a hard keeper or a horse, it's in really heavy work that you're having a tough time keeping weight on that horse. You want a higher quality forage. So you should be more nutrient dense, the more calories you're going to get out of the forage. So you just want to select essentially a younger, uh, less fibrous forage base for that animal. And then the other thing you really want to look at is gut health. So like, why is that horse a hard keeper? So Mm -hmm. is it environmental? Like, is there something that's stressing the horse out consistently in the environment they're in? Uh, Is there, are there health issues, whether it be, uh, you know, a gut health issue, whether it be dentition uh, or something that's stopping that horse from gaining weight? Because realistically meeting the caloric needs of even a hardworking horse is not that hard. So if they're unable to maintain weight, um, you probably want to start looking at other issues that may be there that you're not cognizant of. And like you see a lot of, and this is where, this is where diet formulation and dealing, working with a nutritionist becomes very, very helpful because just switching between feeds and you see this a lot where somebody's like, well, I'm unhappy with this feed. I'm going to switch to this company and maybe my horse will gain weight. And, and there's always testimonials. You can find a million testimonials online that will um, basically confirm 
that whatever scenario you want or that bias you have for switching feeds. And what you really want to do is just look, okay, here's the caloric intake of my horse today. If I increase it, did the horse, is the horse gaining weight? And if I increase it by 20% versus 10%, does that heart keeper gain weight? And quite frankly, you rarely ever see where people would have a forage analysis in the first place to be able to even sit down and do that math. And so there's a lot of switching of feeds going on. Meanwhile, you have this forage base. You have no idea what the nutrient content of that is. It may be something as simple as you went from a feed that, you know, a hay that was 48% NDF and the new one was 62. It looked identical, but the NDF content's considerably higher. So the energy content's dropped and your horse just won't gain weight or uh, won't keep its weight on. It has nothing to do with the, any other feeds you're feeding at the time. It's just the nu- the nutrient density of the hay you were feeding um, is different. And so the biggest thing is figure out the forage quality first, uh, first and foremost. And then, yeah, look at other things like gut health, dentition, uh, if you do have a heart keeper. There's, otherwise, like, it's just cal- – it's not as easy as calories in, uh, but – it is like you should do be able to do the math on and say, okay, this is how many calories in, and we just need to increase the caloric density of this diet, and the horse should be able to gain weight. Otherwise, it's something else is going on. Now, where would you recommend that somebody starts if they want to have um, like a hay or forage analysis done on the hay that they have? So most of us are aware, okay, we're feeding first cuts, second cuts, things like that. But if I want to know the actual breakdown, like where, where should I start? So the best thing would just be take a forage sample, like take a sample of your hay. You can even take samples of pasture. I'll touch on that in a second. But uh, like say hay, for instance, and most ideally you have a a forage probe, you go in and you sample about 10 to 15 bales and you send that off to an accredited lab. Again, on the website, there's a, there's a posting on how to take a hay sample and it gives you a whole list of labs through Canada and the U S you can select from to send that sample. And is this actually a service we're putting together to kind of try to make it easier for people uh, that mm-hmm. will just kind of look after everything for you. Um, it's not up yet, but so for now you just send it to lab and they'll give you your full composition of what's in that hay. And from there you go, you move forward and balance to the hay essentially Barring not having a forage probe, like you can actually just take them by grabbing hands full of hay and taking a pair of scissors and cutting on the hay off on each side of your hand. So you get, you know, that uh, four inch hay sample and do that again, 20 times, drop it in a baggie and you send it off to the local lab and then just send us the forage analysis and we can help you put together the feeding program based on the, what type of hay you have and the nutrient content of that hay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found that really interesting because it's not just saying, okay, my horse just has free choice hay. It's like, well, well, what kind of hay? So that's <laughs> going to be very fundamental in finding out what else they need in terms of supplementation for their diet. So that's, yeah, that was um, really interesting. And when I started learning about hay, it's a whole other world. <laughs> hay is, you can easily go down a rabbit hole of all the different things. It's something I, I was not even aware of. <laughs> so um, best to send that to a lab if you're not interested in um, figuring that all out yourself like me. Um, yeah, just, to, just to drive this point home again too, because I do find in the, we, the like people want to be their own horse nutritionist. And that's great. People want to have this information, but it, the, the 
amount of knowledge, just like you just mentioned, just in hay, like there's entire mm-hmm. textbooks talk about carbohydrate breakdown and all the components of hay, how you analyze it, how it's digested, how, you know, how it interacts in the digestive tract of, you know, an animal and things like that. It's a, uh, it's very in-depth. So it's, you're, you're better off engaging uh, somebody who has some expertise in the field mm-hmm. than just trying to go it alone and hoping for the best. Absolutely. So let's go back to the sport horses um, for a second, <laughs> the different nutritional requirements for the sport horse versus the pleasure horse. And, and maybe we already discussed it a little bit, but if we can just kind of um, add to that or, or wrap that part up with a little bit of a bow. Well, I mean, as a horse works harder, their intake naturally goes up. So let's say you are feeding free choice uh, forage or pasture. Until you get into kind of that extreme end of hard work, the horse will compensate for the increase in energy and protein demands just simply by consuming more feed, uh, assuming it has access to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that doesn't mean you have to give it more grain. That just means they're going to consume more forage. So obviously... As a horse works hard, their energy requirement goes up, their protein requirement goes up a little bit. Not as much as people think. Um, I think people overestimate how much the protein requirement goes up. It's not substantial over maintenance. Um, and like I said, it can be easily covered just by the horse consuming more. And then there's a modest increase in uh, mineral and vitamin requirements as well. The biggest one you'll find between horses that are working relatively hard and a pleasure horse, for instance, is actually electrolyte supplementation. And again, this comes back to salt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just do a whole podcast on salt. <laughs> yeah. uh, horses, because when you look at a horse's diet, when you analyze it, potassium is in excess always in forage. Like, so they're getting a ton of potassium. So if you look at sodium and potassium being the two major electrolytes that are going to be lost uh, in sweat, then calcium and magnesium to a lesser extent. But if you just kind of focus on those four um, Calcium, magnesium, and potassium, forage alone will meet the requirements. So they'll get enough from that. Sodium will never be met from natural feeds, um, forages, or anything they're eating. Just because it's unless, unless you live right on the coast, close to the sea or something, then possibly it might happen. We'll call that the rare case. It's unusual for it to happen. Uh, the biggest thing you want to do is ensure that your salt intake and electrolyte supplementation program is meeting the needs of that horse as they work harder. Um, it doesn't, it, like I said, it doesn't take a whole lot to, again, meet their nutritional needs from an energy and protein standpoint. And even as they get into heavy work, the, basically the way I recommend supplementing is okay. If your horse has exceeded basically your forage program and level of work it's doing, the first thing we're going to start adding in is bee pulp, flax, and oil. So basically what the feed industry has done is gone to fat and fiber feeds. And if that's more convenient for you to pick up a fat and fiber feed from a reputable feed company, then by all means, go do that. Um, But again, just make sure you get the minerals and vitamins balanced and you increase that. But I think like it doesn't even, it's not even going to take that much. And I would lean more towards just increasing the oil. I think people underestimate how much oil or fat you can put into a horse's diet. Like, they, you know, they start thinking, oh, I put this like one or two ounces in. You're like, well, you could put two cups in. You have to work up to it gradually. Um, it's not something you just start doing, but the, the horse can easily tolerate it, uh, the level of fat in there. And it's actually quite beneficial from a performance horse standpoint. So it really, in a nutshell, as you move up the level of work, 
you're really just adding more digestible forms of fiber, a little more fat into the diet for more energy. And you can possibly look at a little higher quality protein sources for the horse. Uh, and there's, you know, with time nutrition, there's things you can do in terms of recovery. And we won't get into that too much, but you know. And then the last thing, the biggest one would be absolutely ensuring that your, your electrolyte supplementation program is adequate for the level of work and the environment. So a horse working hard, say in Florida, for instance, is going to require a lot more salt than a horse in Ontario in the middle of winter mm-hmm. because the sweat rates can be highly different. Let's talk on this salt and why <laughs> it's, it's such a... A, a topic. Um, I feed my horses um, loose salt, which I know was your recommendation. And why is it so important that horses have loose salt in their diet? Um, why loose salt over salt block? Um, and anything else you want to add to that? So I guess the first reason for the salt is that we've already touched on. They're not going to get it from their natural diet. So they're just simply not going to get the sodium where potassium will be 500% of requirement uh, from forage. Sodium will be at a point, you know, like maybe, like maybe 10% of the requirement from a forage or uh, pasture. And so and then, and then, so they don't get very much in their diet. And then you take the horse that has the highest sweat rate, basically of any mammal. And then on top of that, their sweat composition is highly concentrated. So if you compare human sweat to horse sweat, the electrolytes in horse sweat is much, much higher than it is in human sweat. They, you know, in human sweat, they call it hypotonic, where there's more water, basically, um, than there is electrolytes in the sweat compared to the, the um, inside the body. In a horse, it's almost equal. Uh, they sometimes say it's hypertonic, but it's pretty much equal. The amount of sweat or the, sorry, the amount of electrolytes in the sweat is about equal to what's inside their body. So they, they push out a ton of sodium or slash salt when they sweat, combine that with the highest sweating rate in the animal kingdom, combine that with, a you know, the ability, like this high volume to surface area ratio, I guess, low um, surface area to volume ratio in a very metabolically active animal with such a huge muscle mass and such oxidative capacity. And you just set up for, they have a high requirement for salt and we simply aren't providing enough of it in any of the manufactured feeds. And then they don't get it in their natural diet anyways, which comes to the, why we always recommend loose salt. So what's the difference between a block? Because the requirement is so high, it's hard for them to get enough off of a block without physically biting it. And you'll see this a lot of times, uh, particularly in barns where they're not feeding enough supplemental salt and the horses are working hard in a hot human environment well, they'll grind their teeth down a salt block. And that's just them trying to physically get enough salt off that block. Why not just make it easier for them to provide it loose? That way mm-hmm. it's easy for them to consume as much as they want. They don't have to work that hard at it. Because some some horses just simply won't um, spend that much time working with a salt block. And it's mm-hmm. so inexpensive. And it's so easy for you to regulate how much you're giving them with loose salt. Like you don't... <clears throat> I suggest not even mixing it in the feed, like mix like say a tablespoon or two in your feed, depending on how much actual um, stuff you may be giving to in a bowl, being beet pulp, alfalfa cubes, whatever it is you're feeding in the bowl will dictate kind of how much you can mix in. Cause if you mix too much in, they'll stop, they may stop eating the feed. So you don't want to do that. But then you put like an ounce off to the side, basically of what they're feeding. And when you're, when they're done and they're still 
all the salt's gone, add more next time and keep adding more until there's, they leave some behind. Then you know you've reached basically adequate uh, sodium, sodium slash salt intake. That's interesting. I'm not doing that. I'm just mixing it directly in. So that's good to know. I'll, um, I'll start doing that. I already drive my husband crazy. Every time he goes in town, I'm like, get more salt. So <laughs> I'll uh, keep adding it to the list. So again, just to, just to clarify, like you don't want to keep cranking the amount up you're mixing into the feed because eventually it will mm -hmm. turn them off and they'll just stop eating it. Uh, so you just, yeah, set it off to the side, mm -hmm. uh, essentially, so that they can choose to eat the rest of it or not. That's a good, that's a good tip. Okay. Um, ulcers, we had talked a little bit, you had mentioned gut health a little earlier. Um, and I know myself um, coming from boarding burns and, and just seeing different things around the horse world. Um, gut health and ulcers is a huge topic right now. How can uh, we as horse owners help prevent um, negative gut health or ulcers from occurring? And then what's your advice on treating them and preventing reoccurrence? Advice for avoiding them in the first place is as much as possible, you know, try and let the horse be a horse outside, uh, room to move. Expect their social structure, structure as much as possible. I think, I think we really underestimate what, or we don't appreciate what horses, what stresses horses out. Like, I think everybody understands what's, you know, when we really stress a horse out and they tense up and freak out. I don't think we, appreciate kind of the low grade stress that changing, you know, paddock mates and things like that does. When you, you, know, when you look at horses in the wild and how very socially structured they are, um, and then you look at kind of the, what we do to them and you're like, okay, I can understand why the, this might, all of this might be causing low grade stress, which I think is, is a major cause of gastric ulcers. I mean, there's also just the, evolutionary adaptation to chronically secrete acid in their stomach and we turn them into meal feeders a lot of the times um they go in a lot of barns you know they may do night check eight nine ten at night and it's one flake in and you come in in the morning and it's clean there's nothing in the stall so mm -hmm. it could be long periods of time so there's a lot of management practices we can implement just to help avoid ulcers in the first place and then some of it's unavoidable right it's just what we do with horses in modern society whether it be racing um you know competing so trailering somewhere competing that i mean it's just going to be a stressor on the horse so then you come to your next question so what do you do to prevent it you know one of the common things gastroguard is the only i guess that's treatment not prevention but is the only like i guess proven or how do you say this um the one with the patent for treating from a veterinary standpoint for treating gastric ulcers, mm -hmm. but that the mode of action of that and the mode of action that most supplement companies take is this whole idea of we want to re raise the pH of the stomach, um, basically to stop the acid erosion mm -hmm. in the squamous region of the stomach. So, although it can be effective, it's you're essentially fighting biology, right? <laughs> the pH of the stomach is supposed to be around two. Like there's a reason it's there. It's to activate enzymes. It's to create a uh, barrier to pathogens to kill, you know, pathogenic bacteria to help the digestion of the food. And so when we do things that combat that, again, 
it's it's like pushing a rope uphill. It, you may have some positive benefits, but there's also some negative consequences. And I, I certainly don't have all the answers to this. I mean, we took a tact of saying preventive instead of like trying to fight the biology, let's try and work with it a little bit. And, you know, those things that kind of coat the gut, um, promote some protective mechanisms within the gut, promote cell turnover and that kind of thing. Um, so from, you know, from a management and prevention standpoint, there's lots you can do with the feeding strategy in terms of even little things like feeding a little bit of alfalfa before you put a horse on a trailer, or, um, if, before you even go out and work the horse. It acts as a bit of a natural buffer, which I just got done saying is not ideal, but because it's it's an actual feed buffer versus uh, using minerals or um, mm-hmm. pharmaceuticals to achieve it, it, it's a little more effective, I think, uh, and a little more natural to do it that way. Uh, and then treatment, once you, if you do have ulcers, like you said, GastroGuard is really the only veterinary approved pharmaceutical that does. There's lots of off-brand stuff in terms of omeprazole, off-label that people will use. But it goes down that same pathway of inhibiting uh, natural acid production. And again, it can be effective. But then once you stop using it, which anybody that's uh, had to give their horse GastroGuard probably wishes they could stop because of just the sheer cost of it. Uh, but when you stop, you get things like acid rebound, which almost invariably guarantee the ulcer is going to come back. And like, when you look at some of the studies looking at different, uh, ulcer supplements or treatments they've used in the past one, you know, this off on thing with the treatment effect, when they go back off, they almost all recur, particularly if they're still in training, the ulcers come back. And so you do need something to, uh, if you particularly coming off a gastric or meprazole treatment, to help prevent the recurrence again. And that's not to do any product promotion here, but that's where visceral came from was to really stop that recurrence. And it can be used as a preventative uh, as well uh, before you even get ulcers. But I think, you know, at this point, the way we keep horses, is just, it's a bit of a fact of life that you're going to, you're going to have to deal with it for the most part uh, and do preventative strategies in terms of feeding strategies, the environment you keep them in. And then, looking at supplementation um, to help just prevent the issues that uh, are invariably going to creep up with their current management practices. So I had heard that if a horse gets ulcers, they're more likely to get ulcers again. Once it happens, it happens. Um, (laughs) Is that true or is it just the way that we treat them that is makes that true? I would, I would say yes to both things. I mean, your horse, <laughs> what's the saying goes when you have a bad manager? And this isn't to say your horse gets ulcers that you're a bad manager, but if you have a bad, somebody managing a situation that creates a problem, you're like, oh, I can fix your problem, but the problem, you're still going to be here. Your horse is still in that situation, <laughs> right? Like, you're, <laughs> so your horse got ulcers in the environment that you're keeping in, whatever you're doing with it. So somewhere in there is that cause, you know, is the cause of effect in there. So unless you change something drastically in how you're managing that horse and keeping that horse, feeding that horse, yes, you're more likely once you get one to see one, see them come back. And then yes, absolutely. When you treat them with pharmaceuticals, you're going to get recurrence afterwards when you come off the pharmaceuticals. It's, it's almost invariable or inevitable, not invariable. Sorry. It, uh, they, they rebound again. I think you could do a survey. I'm sure people have used GastroGuard and then like when you stopped, did you start to see problems again? Yeah. And so we kind of, you see these repetitive treatments. 
which then leads into its own set of problems. Honestly, uh, long-term use of uh, proton pump inhibitors is not without uh, uh, long-term effects that they've shown in humans, not as much in horses, uh, more because humans live a lot longer. So there's a bigger, bigger concern about long-term effects, but, uh, and there's decreased uh, mineral absorption with these types of things. So it's not something to be taken lightly to have your horse on it all the time, but I like it's, it is certainly a difficult thing. Ulcers are a difficult thing to manage and nobody has like the magic solution as much as again, you go in the supplement industry and everybody's like, Oh, this'll, this'll do it. And I'm sure there's a testimonial to it saying this is the perfect thing. <laughs> I mean, we like to think we have the best, the leading one in terms of the, <laughs> what we're doing. Could it be better? Absolutely. I think there's still work to be done and, uh, areas to improve for sure um, mm. overall but again we can probably improve a lot of things just from management and feeding too on that end as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely now if someone was brand new to supplements and creating a feeding plan what is their what is your advice to get started my advice to get started stay out of the supplement aisle in the feed store it's, <laughs> a la- <laughs> it's the last place you want to go um Honestly, if anything, more often than not, you see horses just getting too much. It happens all the time. You see like 10 supplements in a diet, and that's an exaggeration, but it does, it gets up that high on occasion. And that diet's still in balance. And you're like, and you just, you're like, oh, why? Why do we have so many supplements in here? And then we still don't have a balanced diet. So my advice for anybody is get the basics right first. Get your forage program correct. Get the right forage for your horse so that they're consuming forage for at least 10 to 12 hours a day. First and foremost, before you ever step foot in the feed store or a supplement store, make sure they have salt and get the minerals and vitamins balanced. Then if there's particular issues you're trying to address, absolutely pinpoint what the issue is and what might be causing it. Try as many management things as you can before you run out and buy a supplement because quite frankly, there's just a lot of stuff on the market that is not going to help. It's it's a lot of wasted money. Um, for the most part, better off avoiding it than taking a stab at all the different things you can do. Now, that's not to say there aren't some good ones out there. There certainly are. Um, and there are some very proven things in terms of digestive health uh, products you can use, uh, a few single ingredients that do have an impact. And again, this is where you want, this is where you really want to involve your vet in a qualified nutritionist to help you like why are we feeding the supplement what is the expected outcome and you want to monitor it and you want somebody who's non-biased because the number one thing you're going to get when you spend money on a supplement is you're already biased because you spent the money Mm. and so you're going to want it to work so you want somebody who has no vested interest to do some of the monitoring for you to make sure you are spending the money wisely and you are getting the expected outcome that you're hoping for um, that's a good point. The, well, the price, uh, what's that when you like buy something and then you have guilt that you're buying it. So you try to like <laughs> talk yourself into why, it, why you needed all it. the reasons it was a good decision. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what are some of the most common questions, um, that you re- receive as a supplement company? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> like, help my you know don't you know again they a lot of times it's people have gone down the rabbit hole of like there's been an issue and they start trying a whole bunch of different things and it, it's not that they get lost it's just like you have all these things in the diet and you're kind of like how did these things end up in the diet um and 
they may give you a list of the reasons why or how they end up there. And then you almost start from, uh, let's just start from a blank slate again. Let's balance this thing appropriately. Just minerals and vitamins, salt and hay um, or forage. They keep saying hay, like forage, anything that's forage based basically uh, is ideal. Um, yeah. So another common question, like, it's more like issues, I guess. It's, mm-hmm. You know, how do I deal with ulcers? I mean, gut health issues are probably at the top of the list. Uh, and you talk about colic is a very generic term for anything related to gut health or gut disturbance. That comes across a lot of just like recurring issues there uh, and how to optimize that and uh, joint health and uh, respiratory issues uh, that come up. And again, it, and a lot of these times, a lot of these issues you look at, it's like respiratory issues in particular is how we manage the horses. It's from them being indoors. It's from lack of ventilation in a lot of these barns. Um, I've been in a number of brand new, some of the most amazing, beautiful facilities you'll see. And it's like nobody even thought about how to move air through the barn. They become mm. very, very stagnant in the wintertime. Uh, and they get a lot of ammonia buildup, which leads to a lot of irritation in the lungs, which of the horse, which then um, just to basically lung disease, you're going to get lung disease from that, just from chronic exposure to the ammonia levels from mm-hmm. poor ventilation in a lot of these barns. So again, you get back to have them outside as, ex- as much as possible, exercising as much as possible is, is the ideal uh, situation for the horse. And then it's totally getting off track of like some of the common questions we get, but uh <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's a good answer for a lot of things. Like, allow the horse to be a horse. At the end of the day, it's uh, it's it's going to solve a lot of the problems. It really will, honestly. I mean, again, it's you, sometimes we we want to find answers where the easy answer is right in front of you. You just choose not to do it or want to do it, I guess. And uh, usually, that's the best one is the easy answer. Mm. An exercise in fresh air will solve a lot of problems. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like you said, it's interesting that a lot of our horses' issues are in North American human issues as well. It's it's almost like you hear all the time of people saying the horse is a mirror, and it's like, well, in good and bad, apparently, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely can be for sure. <laughs> yeah. So. Common industry myths. Um, are there any that you want to address, debunk? Here's <laughs> here's your the time. I remember this from being in a stable with my daughter actually riding horses, and it was really hot that day. And uh, I told her to sponge it off with cold water. And you would think I had asked her to shoot the horse. The the and I don't know if this is still common or not. So this is from a few years ago, but they're they people the belief that you can't put cold water on a hot horse is absurd i do remember that um from pony club days it was and like you had to put it in certain areas you had to avoid certain areas i do remember that from pony club yeah everybody that says that i want to drag them out to an endurance race and watch them (laughs) put buckets of ice water on these horses i mean if your horse is overheated the number one thing you want to do is drop its body temperature back to normal as quickly as possible uh like Without question, like so, these endurance horses do 100 miles right in the heat. Uh, they'll do them over in the you know like the UAE in extreme heat, like literally ice buckets of water on these horses to keep their body temperature down and keep them going and keep them comfortable. Um, now that's not to say, I mean, it's a cold environment. The horse really isn't that hot. You don't want to necessarily be dumping cold water all over them, but definitely uh, when it's extremely hot, it's I don't know where it came from. The, 
has nothing to do with tying up um, or anything like that. I think that was the cold water on a horse they would tie up. Mm. But the biggest thing is you want to get the horse temperature back down. Um, so that's one myth. Um, another one, I guess, that horses in hard work need grain. They don't. Uh, what they need is appropriate nutrition for the work they're doing. Um, it can be a little more difficult, certainly a little more challenging to, again, because you got to get into forage selection, hay selection, uh, making sure it's the right uh, balance for them, but it certainly can be done. And it's to the benefit of the horse. And honestly, the benefit of the rider will be less expensive than buying uh, complete feeds or anything else. My horse has fecal water syndrome. Is there anything I can be doing with his feed to help it? And if you want to also, just for anybody that's wondering, address um, what fecal water or free fecal water syndrome is, um, just to give a little background. Uh, yeah, it's a, you know it's fascinating because I didn't really think, no, I was unaware that it was as big of an issue as it is. And then I found a Facebook group totally dedicated to free fecal water syndrome. I think there's a Facebook group for everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> but there's a lot of people in that group. I was like, holy cow. So, and I can't imagine, like, if you're an outsider coming into that group, it's just a lot of pictures of uh, horses' asses with a lot of, like, poopy bums, stains, yeah. wet bums and stuff. And, <laughs> And I understand and I get it why people are putting the pictures on me. Like, if you had no idea, you'd be like, what is this website? Like, what is this website? Uh, so essentially, you know, like, uh, fecal water syndrome is when you have well-formed manure, but in between basically just water coming out of them. So it's not like necessarily diarrhea per se, which is a kind of a separate issue. Uh, you can have like normal uh, manure balls, but then you get this expulsion of water afterwards as well. And it's... Uh, Nobody really knows, honestly, why it happens. There's definitely different remedies, like things like adding psyllium fiber in there, talks about things like probiotics or gut health, but there's certainly not a one thing fixes it. I know that for sure. Like we've, when we first got introduced to it, we've tried a few different things and like we've had success with it, but this is the thing. Sometimes you have to experiment with it. And quite honestly, anybody with horse with fecal water syndrome is usually open to experimentation just because, it is like it's just it's unpleasant mm-hmm. um it's not necessarily like the horses can look great they don't look like there's anything wrong with them it's just yeah they have a dirty behind all the time so it's a lot of work for the owners too always cleaning and then you want to make yeah. sure there's no skin irritation with the horses and yeah it it can be a, a really big hassle yeah for sure and uh so, and then like, again, back to forage selection, sometimes you get away to a softer uh, type of hay, like some of these stemmy hay seem to irritate uh, some horses' guts. Um, we've kind of, we had one thing we call the gut bomb, which is, a, I shouldn't even be saying this on a podcast necessarily, but it's an old school thing they used to do, they used to do with uh, straight piglets. Basically, you feed really high levels of zinc and copper to them as a kind of antibacterial effect in the gut and it actually was quite effective in some horses as well and helping clear that up which would indicate that some of the fecal water syndrome issues are from a, some dysbiosis going on in the microflora and if you can get that corrected um, sometimes it can make it go away but again it's, I certainly have not found a one solution for it uh, so I, I encourage people to kind of experiment again mm-hmm. 
don't experiment blindly. Like this is again, what happens a lot of times is people will just run out and start trying a whole bunch of different products. And that's super expensive way to experiment. Um, what you want to do is take your current diet. So whenever it started, or maybe it's been an ongoing problem, take that diet and have it evaluated. So you know what the exact chemical composition of your diet is. Then you can look at, you know, uh, you know, is there yeast in the products you're feeding or there bacteria probiotics and these things that you're feeding now, and then as you make changes, they're informed changes. So, you know, okay, we changed this from here to here to get worse, to stay the same, to get better. And then you can like kind of work your way through um, dealing with the issue versus throwing darts at it and hoping it works. That's a really good point because I feel as though many of us um, as horse owners, when there is an issue, the first thing that we do is go and grab a whole bunch of stuff that says it's going to help it. And then we throw it all at it and you don't know what worked and what didn't. So it's, it's always best to take one thing at a time, see if it works, if it didn't, okay, stop that, try something else and and do it slow. Is that, am I correct in saying that? Yeah, no, absolutely. Now there are times when compounding different things may be the answer, but again, you want to do it with like, what I call educated guests. So again, working with your vet and nutritionist would be ideal in the situation because they're going to have, everybody's going to have a different kind of perspective and understanding of the way things work. And so trying to integrate the knowledge, like the physiology of what it is you're doing and how you're anticipating that's going to help. Um, maybe like you see a slight improvement, like, okay, we're going to leave this in, but we're going to add, you know, this on top. So like the example I just gave you where we were using basically yeast probiotics and fibers to try and help with it. It wasn't really helping all the cases like you'd see small improvements, but it wasn't getting those really tough cases. And then we stacked uh, a high level of zinc and copper um, into that mix. And that really helped. So I think, you know, in which case, if we just dropped all the other stuff and just went zinc and copper, I think we probably wouldn't have got the, the same benefit that we got by doing you know, get inundated now with requests for this, but uh, <laughs> yeah. um, so I think it's important. Like, I think it's like most important is just the thoughtful process that goes into it. And then, then you're monitoring and recording and uh, because like our memories, our memories will fail us, I guess, you know, we, in terms of like our perception of how much it changes the differences. So like really recording day to day, and the changes I think is really important. That's a very, very good point. And I think that applies to more than just nutrition with our horses, um, with so many different aspects, training, um, behavioral, all the different things. I think us keeping like a little journal or logbook or whatever works for somebody else on their phones, voice notes, whatever, um, because our memories do fail us. And sometimes we even go back, like we tell ourselves a certain story. And so we, <laughs> you know, it, it, we may make something seem better than it was or worse than it was. So keeping a log book um, as an equestrian, I think is extremely important for nutrition and beyond. So that's a really good point. And everybody has one in their pocket now with a camera on it, like taking mm-hmm. pictures, particularly when you're talking body condition, top line and things like that. Um, I think it'd be very, very valuable to have like quantitative aspects of what you are hoping to change or you see change mm-hmm. um, can really Absolutely. add to the, I couldn't agree more about the journal, but that can really add to it to have your pictures to look back on um, to really see if there is a, a big change. Yeah. 
Yep. Good point. So the next question um, is, my gelding has quite sensitive feet, and I'm wondering if there's anything I can be doing, nutritionally speaking, to help harden his feet. Uh, again, really just a balanced diet. Like um, you said, I think you mentioned prior, you're feeding Omnity. So like biotin is a big one in terms of like additional, but the Omnity has the whole 20 milligrams in there, so there's no need to add any more. Um, and, you know, essentially making sure things are balanced using copper bites and being big ones. And then just ensuring uh, your sugar levels essentially in the hay or even low grade over consumption of calories. So getting back into them, it doesn't have to be full blown metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance to start having things like just being a little bit sore in the feet or and this is just strictly nutrition. I mean, there's lots of things you get into uh, trimming and different things like that. It's not my area of mm-hmm. expertise, so I won't touch it, but, uh, you know, just, you know, measuring the, uh, caloric consumption to see, are you like kind of just over all the time is the horse kind of slowly gaining weight? And is that part of the reason for the sensitivity in the feet? Uh, it can be things like leaky gut. Um, if there's, it could be compounded, say, by leaky gut that could be causing issues, just this chronic low-grade inflammation that may cause some of the issues in the feet. Or even, like, you see a lot in the springtime, right, when horses get out on fresh grass, they'll, they'll get a little foot sore. Uh, again, that's usually from excess sugar or just a little the caloric intake jumps up and could also combined with significant change in forage intake, you know, disrupting the hindgut and the microbiota, kind of combine that all together. So balancing out the diet and ensuring you have a good, stable uh, microflora by keeping the diet consistent should, from a nutritional standpoint, be the best way to go about it. And then just ensuring all the nutrients they need are in there. Now, you had mentioned sugars um, in that, and it kind of brings me back to when you were saying about um, testing your um, pasture. I had only ever thought about doing like hay analysis, but can you also do a pasture analysis to look at the nutrients in like the grass that they're eating? Yeah, absolutely. And we, again, we encourage people uh, to do it because I mean, ideally that would be your horse's main source of calories and Mm -hmm. forage uh, is pasture if it's suitable for them. Now, unfortunately for metabolic horses, a lot of times it's not, Um, but yeah, you can take clippings. So essentially you want to clip it off at about where the height the horse would eat it, which is like fairly low to the ground, not try not to get to any soil contamination into it. Um, and like, if you're doing it like in a very defined method, you would go out and take like a rectangle and just take, you know, four or five up to 10 different spots and then clip the grass. And then you just put that in a sample baggie. Now the one caveat to taking fresh grass samples and sending them to the lab is you're essentially, even after you cut the grass, it's still alive. Uh, so there's still respiration going on and you're going to get, and there's also a lot of water activity. So you're going to really get a lot of uh, microbial activity in that sample if you keep it at room temperature or above. And so you need to freeze it right away. Um, one of the biggest things that'll happen is ba- th- those bacteria will start fermenting the grass and they'll take that sugar and essentially turn it into uh, volatile fatty acids. So if what you're concerned about mainly is sugar levels in your pasture and that's what you're looking at. Uh, you definitely don't want that to happen. You want to know what the sugar level is. So you want it frozen right away uh, until it gets to the lab. Or uh, if you want to dry it yourself, uh, you can do that. You can dry it in a microwave. Uh, if you do it in the house, it's going to stink. <laughs> so don't necessarily recommend that. But, or if, um, I guess nobody's going to have a drying oven, but 
<laughs> the best thing is just get it frozen and send it to the lab. Uh, is, is, make sure you're getting the correct values. Now with the nutritional, um, I'm trying to think of, do you call them nutritional consultations with Mad Barn? Like what, what is the name of it when, when I submit like an, an analysis, I guess it is. Yeah, we consider it a consultation because again, it is us just is consulting with the horse owner, but the best way, I mean, from a chemical standpoint of like your horse needs, you know, these nutrients, that's, you know, fairly straightforward, but then you, you have to meet the needs of everybody's feeding situation as well. Right. And that's different for everybody. So you do need to have a discussion about, you know, what's going to work for your setup. Now, do you offer, I know that you offer, um, like you look at the hay analysis, but do you also look at pasture analysis as well? If I was to submit like the grass that they're on and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, any analysis you have of feeds and then uh, we will include in, and on top of that, I mean, we do our own, like we have our own feed bank that now exceeds like 3000 commercial feeds, forages, different things that uh, data bank wise, it may even have more information than you get off than you could get off a of feed tag. And we'll use that data as well, because we do a lot of internal sampling to uh, fill out our feed bank to make it more robust uh, to get the information that isn't included on feed tags in a lot of cases. Um, so, but the more information you have in terms of your own direct lab analysis, that's fantastic. We'll input it all. Uh, like if you uh, go on in Mad Barn Feed, you can see it's like everything's fully customizable so that you can put uh, the complete nutrient specs for every feed that's going in there. And again, the more information we have, the better, the better we're going to be able to balance it and know uh, what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I didn't know that about the pasture samples. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to get on that. That's interesting. <laughs> so with um, our We Horse podcast, we have four questions that we ask every guest um, and we're going to dive in if you're ready for them. Do I need so, to grab a drink for this? <laughs> I, I don't know. Do you want me to ask the questions first and then you can decide? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> so the first one is, do you have a motto or a favorite saying? <laughs> just, uh, I just did it when I was talking to the nutritionist this morning and it's not my motto. Or, well, it, uh, it was, don't worry about getting it right, just get it going. And it's not about doing things incorrectly. It's about, uh, sometimes we get bogged down in the details and just don't get things going and it's more important just make sure action happens i think it's that's mostly because there's some recency bias in that motto i guess and uh, the other one would be invest early in yourself <laughs> i've done a number of presentations particularly when it's a group of uh, young people about the power of compound interest and uh and making sure you put money aside for your future i guess and in allowing that money to compound, particularly in the horse world, because we have a tendency to spend all our money on horses. <laughs> that's, <true. laughs> that's very good. Uh, that's more than a saying. That's just good advice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the second one is who has been the most influential person in your equestrian journey? Equestrian journey. That's uh, the most influential. Mm-hmm. He's not even in the equestrian journey. Honestly, it's uh, Dr. John Cannon. Like, he was my master's and PhD advisor, and he's a ruminant nutritionist and modeling. But uh, it, he's just from, uh, I guess, 
ability to look at things analytically and just I guess his view on things. He's probably been the most influential person. And I guess, like I said, it's not you said equestrian, but I think it it feeds over into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he doesn't have to be an equestrian. It's just in your journey in general. So if he played a part, then then yeah, that's um, that's good. If you could give equestrians one piece of advice, what would it be? <laughs> Let your horse be a horse. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's been crucial in my journey. So I I second that. Um, I I really like that advice. So the last one is complete this sentence. For me, horses are. For me, horses are. Well, now they're my everything. I mean, they, they basically encompass my whole life now. Business, mm-hmm. pleasure. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to add for our listeners? I covered anything, but again, to kind of summarize the main points, <laughs> lots, of, lots of water, salt, and get the correct for it. So lots of eating time for your horse. Make sure they're eating uh, mm-hmm. all the as po- not all the time obviously but as much as possible and they have the correct forages in front of them and a well-balanced mineral vitamin program a lot of the, everything else will fall in place after that mm-hmm. and like i had said earlier i can't recommend enough to go on to Madburn and um and enter in your horse's information to get your own customized nutrition plan for them um it's so easy it's free um, and you'll get lots of really good advice and it's quick too. I couldn't believe how quick I did it and how quick my response was. Um, so I highly recommend um, doing that. Where can people find more about Madburn and how can they get their own? Okay. I just answered my own question. How can they get a free customized nutritional consultation? Go on Madburn, but how can they find <laughs> out more about it? Yeah, so talked about my business partner, come on. She's done an amazing job with the website. So there's a, just a ton of information on there. Uh, it's a pretty easy follow through to, and even if you don't want to fill out on the information on the form on the website, uh, we have a toll free number call, uh, you know, send a carrier pigeon a message. Somebody will get it, I'm sure. Uh, or just email info at Mad Barn. We'll be more than happy to help out. There's a whole team of nutritionists working away every day, uh, helping horse owners to, Get it right. And your blog is wonderful as well. There's a ton of free resources on the blog. They cover like every topic you can imagine. Um, so I highly recommend going on there also. Um, I should be a spokesperson for Mad Barn. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't thank you enough, Scott, for coming on and chatting with me tonight. Um, like I had said, I love everything that you do. I love all the education that you provide. And I hope that our listeners got as much out of this as I do um, every time I listen to your podcast that you're always on. So thank you so much. Yeah, again, thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure. And uh, like I said, if anybody needs anything, reach out. We're, that's what we're here for. It's here to help. So Perfect. Again, thank you and have a wonderful rest of your evening. You too. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Equestrian Connection podcast by WeHorse. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you could leave us a rating and review, as well as share us on social media. 
You can find us on Instagram at wehorse underscore USA and check out our free seven day trial on wehorse.com where you can access over 175 courses with top trainers from around the world in a variety of topics and disciplines. Until next time, be kind to yourself, your horses and others.